This episode, I'm joined once again by Michael P. Federici to discuss the life and work of Irving Babbitt, alongside discussions on Rousseau, human will, Christianity, politics, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, gain access to some exclusive content, or just keep everything running as the show runs from donations alone, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Michael Federici, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Uh, this episode, we are going to be talking about um, a writer called Irving Babbitt, who was a writer of New Humanism. I think if people had read his work, they would be most familiar with his book, uh, Leadership and Democracy. And he's sort of influenced by Burke, Edmund Burke. He has relationships with Christianity in a very peculiar way. He's also influenced by Confucius and the Buddha and but also has a background generally in Orientalism and also has a background in the classics. And I think there's also a couple of other backgrounds that I'm probably um, missing there. So extremely eclectic figure who is most, I guess, most firmly rooted in your own uh, area of study, which is, I guess, American conservatism or political conservatism more generally. Um, You know, outlining the questions, doing the research for this, it's really difficult. It was really difficult to find a place to sort of start with Babbitt. So I guess I'll just ask you, I mean, where did your interest in Babbitt? Uh, yeah. Where did that begin? I first encountered Babbitt when I was an undergraduate. I read his book, Literature in the American College, which was his argument against uh typical sort of reforms that were taking place in the early and later 20th century that allowed students to have all kinds of electives rather than having a more prescribed curriculum that would ensure that they got a good liberal arts education, that they were familiar, for example, with the classics and Babbitt saw the movement away from that, which really was based on the idea that, uh, you know, a college sophomore knows better than a tradition that's been around for many generations, what the right sort of curriculum was for most students. And in addition to that, it was a uh, really an attempt to change the very nature of college education to be more like what it is now. And that is a utilitarian endeavor that prepares people for a professional life. It's job training more than it is the cultivation in human beings of a certain way of thinking or character. Mm-hmm. And that, that impressed me when I was an undergraduate. I hadn't really encountered a thinker like that before. And that in part led me to want to go to graduate school. Um, And I went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C., where I studied with Klaus Rinn, who is arguably the, you know, the biggest Babbitt scholar in the world. And so I got a heavy dose of Babbitt when I went to grad school. So what do you, for for Babbitt, should education simply be quite literally education you're here to get educated you're here to learn you're here to gain knowledge i mean what's the if we were to remove that telos of for a job which is a pretty pathetic one really um what is what is the is there what's the aim for babbitt of education it's babbitt saw the movement in modernity that was taking shape in the early 20th century as a movement away from what education had primarily been, and that is an education for character, the education of the self, the reform of the self. And instead, education became an instrument to reform society without even any attention really to the need for the reform of the self. And Babbitt thought this a great mistake because even for those who would engage in the work of politics and social reform, it was a prerequisite that they would reform themselves first, that they they would be prepared to do that work. So he was often quoting Emerson. Emerson has a line about the law for man and the law for thing. And the problem in modernity in part has been we keep moving toward an understanding of human beings as merely a matter of following the law for thing rather than the law for man. And the law for thing has its place 
especially when it comes to the material life of human beings and a certain kind of natural science, but that the law for man was the thing that was being neglected. And that's what needed to be the focus of education is what does it mean to be a human being? What have the great works of history, literature, philosophy, and art, what have they taught us about what it means to be a human being and what's necessary to live a good and happy human life, what's necessary for harmony between human beings. The law for thing is not going to help us understand the nature of the problem of human affairs. Mm-hmm. This, is a, a, this is a discussion I was having with someone recently about this turn in Western philosophy, which is a very new thing where the, the words object, subject, you have the object, subject relation or objective and subjective have the the language around these words have slowly devolved to such an extent where these two terms are basically now for many people understood as anathema to each other. Like one is subjective is simply opinion and objective is this like elusive truth that doesn't have any relationship with the subjective. But the discussion I was having is that this is just completely absurd. You know, they're always in relationship with each other. And Babbitt seems to be someone who, you know, he... He is always talking about how, as you said, the internal world of man has to be developing in relationship with their uh, understanding of the external world of what's going on in politics. But at the same time, he's he's clearly self-aware enough to know, especially when it comes to things such as tradition, as you've said, with education, that, well, we can't just completely lean into like the individualistic internal world because then we completely lose the root. So he's really walking this seriously precarious tightrope of understanding look these things we had this tradition this heritage is obviously extremely important but we can't just go full steam ahead and just adhere to the letter of the law as times change but equally that doesn't mean we can fall on the other side and just allow any single opinion to um to to matter for its own sake so how in the world does he manage to uh balance you know find this balancing act between these two positions so that's a wonderful question <laughs> with which to talk about really the essence of irving babbitt's work and that is that babbitt sees in life both permanence and change and the problem as he sees it with many philosophers for example is they're either philosophers of the one or they're philosophers of the many. They're either philosophers of permanence or they're philosophers of change. And they don't fully appreciate the interaction between the two. So Babbitt has a line in his book, Rousseau and Romanticism, in which he says, life does not present here merely a oneness or change. It presents a oneness that is always changing. So if there was a word that I was to use, how Babbitt to describe how Babbitt puts together these experiences in life with permanence and change, it would be, um, I mean, there are a couple of words that we could use, but one would certainly be synthesis. So Babbitt doesn't see the permanence in life, the oneness, or what is sometimes called the universal, as something that is known in a platonic form outside of history. It's not a trans-historical thing. It's historical. And it's historical in part because we only know universality through particularity. So if we're talking about something like beauty, we don't know what beauty is apart from particular beautiful things. So we come to know the universal through our experience with particularity. And likewise, that means that There is not one standard of beauty that can be applied to all circumstances in all times because the human conception of what beauty is changes with the changes in life and circumstances. So we're always searching for a new understanding that doesn't completely throw out the old. It builds on the old. Another word you could use with Babbitt is reconstitutes. We have to reconstitute the true, the good, and the beautiful through time. So I'll give you an example. In the previous discussion we were having about the curriculum, Babbitt is not some sort of stodgy conservative who believes that, you know, there are these great books that we can put on a list 
And that's what education is. And all students at all times should study these great books, and then they will be educated. Babbitt was very ecumenical and very creative in the way that he conceived of education. And that's why he draws on sources, not only from the West, but also from the East, as you indicated in your first remarks. So Confucius and Buddha are important, just like the Christian or the classical tradition. And what you get from that broader range of human understanding is uh, Eric Vogelin has a concept that I think is appropriate to evoke here that has to do with common human understanding. And that is to say that if the reality that we experience as human beings is truly a universal reality, a common human ground, then human beings in different ages and different societies and civilizations should experience things with regard to the human condition that are very similar. They might not be identical. They might, might not be described in exactly the same way, but they're the, the language symbols that are used to describe them refer to a common human experience that we have. And that, in Babbitt's way of thinking, also includes this part of human beings, which he calls the inner check or the higher will, that we, 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 are, we live in the war in the cave. We have these competing desires uh, in our souls. And as human beings, we pause and we consider whether or not it makes sense for us to let those passions and desires become action or not. Or we check and we restrain them and refrain from acting on them. You know, that's what it means to be human is really that, that war in the soul. And his criticism of modernity is the part that it has turned the attention of human beings to not something that is internal to human beings, but is external so like in the philosophy of someone like Marx, it's a class struggle. It's outside of human beings. It's not largely an existential problem, a moral problem, which for Babbitt, all things come back to the problem of the soul and the tension within the soul between good and evil. I noticed that you mentioned uh, about doing, about action. So Babbitt has this focus on, he's a very, like throughout all this, you might think, oh, this is all very theoretical, but he's constantly coming right always reeling things back into practical to what i guess you could define it as almost like capital r reality like we can get lost in this theory but we need to get back to how is a moral man meant to act and it's this you know these these two sort of ways that you've mentioned i mean this is why it's quite humorous when babbitt brings him into discussion but his um understanding of rousseau especially in relation to everything we've spoken about so far and this this emphasis that he has on action and reality and Rousseau in terms of this sudden emphasis on romanticism and on the emotions is sort of, it seems to be that Babbitt is saying, well, if you focus too much on this, on that kind of internal world, then you're sort of occluding the history, the shared history that you've mentioned, and you're just focusing on the emotions and you're getting lost in your own sort of drama and avoiding what is basically the most important thing, which is to to be moral, as you said, but to actually be very practically moral. So as you mentioned with the external, his focus, um, one thing I guess to mention with you mentioned Marx and class struggle is Babbitt has this focus on history as as this very clear thing, but this wouldn't be like the Marxist understanding of history. So it, he is moving away from any romantic notion in that sense. Exactly. There's no progress to history. I mean, there may be moments of progress, but then there are moments of regression, but there's no overarching pro progress in history. Rousseau is an especially important figure for Babbitt. You know, he's the foil in many respects, although he has a certain admiration for Rousseau. He says at the beginning of democracy and leadership that Rousseau asked all the right questions, but he gave the wrong answers to them. But there's no small thing that he was asking the right questions that Rousseau saw in the Enlightenment this neglect of what before we were calling the law for man, and it focused too much on the law for thing. But the, the central difference between someone like Rousseau and Babbitt is that Rousseau is wedded to the idea that human beings are good by nature. Babbitt is part of this older Western tradition 
that he also identifies in the East that human beings have divided souls, that they are divided between the inclination to do good and the inclination to do evil, what he called a higher and a lower will. And Rousseau, by contrast, is confident that human beings are good by nature. Well, once you make that claim that they're good by nature, then you really have deviated from the idea that the focus of education and the moral life needs to be on the reform of the individual. And instead, the focus becomes on the reform of society, on institutions and conventions as the cause of evil, and therefore the place where reform should focus and concentrate. So it's, you know, it's part of the social justice tradition uh, that Rousseau is a primary philosopher of because he diverts our attention from something that is interior to something that is exterior. And the second thing I will say, which is a major point of deviation between Babbitt and Rousseau is Rousseau has a very idyllic imagination. He conceives of life in a way that makes human beings to be good. And he's very idealistic, um, whereas Babbitt follows Burke in claiming that the moral imagination is the way that we should conceive of life. You know, see things how they actually are. Yes, be able to see human beings at their best, but also recognize what human beings are capable of at their worst. And so you get a more rounded view of what human beings are when you use the moral imagination, as opposed to that idyllic imagination, which is basically saying that we're all okay as human beings. We don't need to be reformed. All the problems are out there external to us in convention. Mm. And it's interesting, this this dialogue between good and evil, and I guess morality for Babbitt, because one might you know, if you if you were to look at Babbitt from a glance in terms of his uh, the intellectual context of what, in which he's working, you might assume that someone from his background would you know just de facto be some form of Christian. Um, but he so as I understand, he has a Protestant upbringing, and then fairly quickly ends up studying uh, specific forms of Buddhism and I think also some other Eastern religion. And from the, so from this, you know, I guess it's interesting that we don't have the foundation which many conservative writers would have of the Christian foundation where good has already won. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, there is this, uh, eschatology, which is always at work. Whereas now we have this quite literally a good versus evil, which in terms of Babbitt's morality, where are we, where are we heading? Is there an end point for the morality? What you have to understand about Babbitt is not only is he ecumenical, but he takes seriously the challenge that has been posed by positivism or what he sometimes calls scientific naturalism in the early 20th century. And that is that they will no longer accept the authority of the church. They will no longer accept the authority of tradition. And so Babbitt wants to meet them on their own ground and very important part of Babbitt's work. So if positivists are making the claim that the only reality ex that exists is that which we can know experientially, then Babbitt says, fine, I will meet you on your own ground. And on experiential grounds, not based on dogma or doctrine that comes from a church, not based even on the authority of tradition, but based on human experience, which includes the broad range of historical experience, then he is going to demonstrate in his work that human beings are these divided creatures, that they have a higher will, which Babbitt says in Democracy and the Leadership is what makes human beings human and is ultimately divine. So there are moments in his work when he will use Christian terminology as a reference point to say, when I'm talking about the higher will or the inner check, I'm really talking about what Christians say is grace moving within individuals, right? Pulling them in the direction of some transcendent force and pulling them away from uh, a force that he calls the lower will that pulls people out of harmony with other human beings and pulls them in Christian language to the life of sin. 
Babbitt wants to do this in an ecumenical way so that he can address the challenge of positivism and meet the positivists on their own ground. And so to do that, he doesn't want to even just refer to one tradition. And that's in part why he goes searching in the East to say, look, all of these thinkers are coming to the same conclusion about what it means to be a human being, about what human experience is. This is the law for man that they're talking about. And it should be part of the human experience that we use to figure out what is real and what is true with a small t. And the problem with positivism is that it truncates, right? It limits the scope of human experience. And Babbitt is trying to say to the positivists, you're not even true to your own standards. <laughs> if you were true to your own standards, you would look at the broad range of human experience that includes experience with the law for man and not just the law for thing. Experience that we have with divine reality, with transcendent reality. And that, that's why uh, the Buddha is a very important figure for Babbitt. He translates the Dhammapada. And the Dhammapada is so much about waking from a moral laziness, a moral sloth, and using your will to overcome those tendencies in human nature, to conquer oneself you know, which is very similar to what you find in the classical or in the Christian tradition. And so he, he's sort of pulling together all of these traditions and saying they share this common ground because they have the same human experience. They use different language to describe it, but it's, it's this permanent aspect of life that all of these traditions are explaining. Do you think in that sense he could possibly be described as a, a perennialist then? Uh, well, what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> well, in the sense that there's this uh, sort of thread of, I, I would understand it as there's a thread of divine truth throughout history, which each religion is uh, coming to understand in its own terms. And, you know, you can sort of, in a, uh, in, a, in a way of synthesis throughout history, you can see, okay, you know, um, the Egyptians were like weighing the heart when when you came to die in terms of your morality. And then you see in Christianity, okay, well, there's sort of this this weighing idea with St. Augustine and the flipping of the book uh, of good and bad deeds, et cetera, et cetera. And this sort of, yeah, a, a thread which everyone is touching upon and coming to the same conclusions, but they're having to do so within their own context, within their own understanding, on the shoulders of giants as well. Yes, Yes, I think that fits Babbitt very well. And we need to keep in mind that he identifies himself as a humanist. He's part of new humanism. That's a very slippery term. And he's using that language at the same time there are people like John Dewey around, one of his enemies, <laughs> who is also calling himself a humanist. But I would say Babbitt is more in the tradition of the classical humanist tradition, the Christian humanist tradition. And that's partly what allows him to meet the positivists on their own ground by saying, I'm not coming out of this in a doctrinal or dogmatic way, in a way that reifies human experience. Instead, we want to take it really in its authentic form wherever we find it. And so that leads them to be ecumenical and to, yes, say that, you know, that there is this common human experience, which is with the permanent as well as the changing aspect of life. But that permanent aspect of life, which transcends human beings themselves, is something that we know from experience. Mm -hmm. So how does, how does new, new humanism differ from humanism? Um, well, humanism of the, the Dewey type of humanism is sometimes referred to as secular humanism. And it, like positivism, closes off the scope of human experience, you know, almost in the way that Jefferson does with his Bible when he takes the pair of scissors to it and takes out anything that may seem to be uh, unverifiable by modern science. Um, so Dewey is in that tradition uh, that Babbitt rejects because it's too limiting and it excludes important parts of human experience. 
So his humanism is a humanism that is perfectly compatible with the understanding that what we experience in human life is um, contact between the human and the divine, between the human and the transcendent, that universality is incarnate in particular life. And the Deweyites, you know, would say, well, that just sounds like religion to me. And that's not part of reality. That's just belief. And it's uh, based on faith, not on science. And we need to be true to science because that's what's going to bring, bring progress into human existence. Mm -hmm. But in, in a, almost like to flip it in terms of experience, Babbitt also would reject sort of the dogma of Roman Catholicism for almost like the same reasons, but in the inverted sense. Yes. Yes. And there were many people who were of that orientation who pushed back against Babbitt because he wouldn't embrace particular doctrines or a particular faith. And, you know, Babbitt would say there are these different ways of living and different ways of understanding and humanism comes before religion. And it may be that humanism leads people to become religious, but we need to take baby steps first before we can graduate into the deeper understanding of what's real. We have to understand things on this experiential ground first, rather than just jumping right into dogma, uh, the, the reification of the experience where people, if, if they haven't done the humanistic work first, don't really understand at that experiential level what it is that they believe in. They just believe because that's what they think they're supposed to do is believe. And they, they confuse the doctrine itself for the thing which is primary, which is the human experience behind the doctrine. And so the problem of reification is one that, that Babbitt is very keen to avoiding. So what would you define the humanist work on oneself as that just a sort of know thyself and understanding of what your personal experience is and whether or not, you know, it actually is in agreement with all these things which are coming your way. Right. So, I mean, Babbitt was keen on the classics. So, you know, Aristotle is a great humanist thinker, Plato, Sophocles, um, you know, Homer, they're all part of trying to understand in this humanistic way, this experiential way, what it means to be a human being. And it's very imaginative. So it literature, poetry, the arts are very important for Babbitt because he believes that they're in many respects more powerful with regard to the imagination than, you know, say technical philosophy is. Mm -hmm. What, it's a very vague, vague question, but in terms of the fact that it's still clear that Babbitt does want to hold on to some, what we could perhaps abstractly call order as a conservative thinker, how, how would he understand, because I know he's not keen on anarchy in an abstract sense, how might he understand the situation when one's individual experience has perhaps gone rampant and is almost in a destructive mode, so to speak, you know. So he's always trying to hold on to the root of things to retain an order which allows, um, you know, a serious, sincere, real experience of the individual in relation to, you know, building something greater. How would he begin to understand it when perhaps things are going awry and, you know, the the, the individual imagination is just sort of let itself go loose. Well, Babbitt, first thing to say here is that Babbitt draws on an idea that's traced back to at least Plato, and that is that the city is the soul writ large. So whether you're talking about the problem of order in the individual or the problem of order in the city, in the society, it's the same basic problem. At its root, it is a problem of existential order. It is a problem of the soul. So the disordered soul is like Plato's democratic man. He has lost control of himself. He has lost self-control, right? So Babbitt's language of inner check and higher will is all about self-control. His attraction to Buddhism and especially the Dhammapada, where 
an individual who conquers himself is greater than an individual as a soldier who conquers, you know, many enemies in battle. It's the conquering of the self that's important. So individual disorder is a problem of individuals doing essentially what Rousseau says they should do. And that is the letting go of restraint, the letting go of the power within individuals to discriminate against passions that are consistent with happiness and the good life and justice and passions that are destructive to those ends and aspirations of human existence. So the individual faces the challenge of order of the self that is the problem of the soul that he's describing in his books. So following the higher will is how order is created. And the higher will, remember for Babbitt, is and isn't human. It's partly divine. It's that point of contact between the human and divine. And it's, it's, universal, meaning that when human beings as individuals follow the higher will, that's how harmony is created in society. So there's a connection there like there was for Plato between the order in the soul and the order in the city. If you order your soul, to use Babbitt's language, in accordance with the higher will, then you are creating social harmony because you are more inclined because of the character that you have to get along with human beings, to not be imperialistic, which is what, and conceited, which is what Babbitt thinks Rousseauism leads to, because you're so convinced that you're good and you're so convinced that you're better than others that you go about life in a very imperialistic way. And in foreign affairs, this is what Babbitt saw was the problem with the Great War, the First World War, is that Americans had become conceited. He doesn't so much use the language of American exceptionalism, but we certainly can do that to illustrate Babbitt's point about this self-conceit. My nation is the greatest that has ever existed. It is, you know, the Christ of nations, as Woodrow Wilson might have said. And so it therefore should go out into the world and remake that world in its own likeness and image, that everyone should be like me because I'm the best and I'm so good. That conceit is impossible, Babbitt would say, if you are tending to the order of the soul. And if you begin in the place that all of these figures in this wide tradition begin, which is understanding that human beings are imperfect and imperfectible. So we ought to be cautious and modest about how good we really are. And remember that our primary work should be on ourselves, not on others. Mm-hmm. Where does he, where does he uh, build this language from, this uh, lower will, higher will, and harmony? I'm sort of interested. I mean, where does this, is this sort of taken from all these different sources, or is there a clear place where these, the influence of this language has come from? Yes. I mean, some of it comes from Hinduism. Some of it comes from Confucius. Some of it comes from Buddha. Some of it comes from Christianity or the, the ancient classical world. You know, it, it comes from a variety of different places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing, I guess, one thing as well that struck me as sort of very typically Catholic, actually, is that his notion actually there of between all of those things of freedom, the fact that he's he's clearly not for just the subject having this sort of Rousseauian, romantic, unalloyed, libertine freedom. I don't want to, maybe not libertine with Rousseau, but just this complete freedom. Uh, the 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 Babbitt freedom is freedom. I guess you know freedom against, not always freedom for, you know, that's freedom of, freedom to understand the limitation, freedom for self-control, which is itself a, uh, a fairly Catholic understanding of, of yes. freedom. Freedom from the slavery of passion. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, Augustine um, talks about it quite a bit, but if there's one thing in Babbitt, Babbitt, I think that's particularly consistent with the Catholic tradition, it is his emphasis on will. Um, you know, Catholic tradition is a big thing, and there are many strains to it. But when Babbitt is thinking about the parts of the soul or the parts of a human being, and he is placing importance on reason and on will, he sides with will. He says, will is more important than reason is. Reason may help us understand what's right, but only the will actually does what's right, mm-hmm. lead, leads us to what's right. And even reason is, like David Hume would say, to some extent, a slave to the passions. So reason is not the thing that is 
the most important to the moral life. For Babbitt, it is this quality of will that is. And the more you exercise it, so the more you act in accordance with the higher will, the easier it becomes for you to act in accordance with what is virtuous. I mean, in, when put in that at that sense, I mean, it's actually extremely platonic. It reminds me of the uh, the Phaedrian chariot, right? Of the the soul being led in two directions, and which which way are you gonna going to pull it? And it's not necessarily reason in that sense, which pulls pulls the horse in either direction. It's it's the will. Um, but just in relation to this sort of idea, I guess, of freedom and then Catholic. Uh, and being pulled in two directions. This is possibly my favorite quote from him, just to, you know, get your insight on it. Uh, this is from Democracy and Leadership. Uh, the choice to which modern man will finally be reduced, it has been said, is that of being a Bolshevist or a Jesuit. So why, why are these the two final options for man? Um, I mean, he's being somewhat facetious there. He, he doesn't want those, of course, to be the two choices, but it is as if, um, you know, one main current, especially in the Western world and even outside the Western world, is Marxism um, and the, the kind of class differentiation and understanding of what it means to be a human being. Um, and so, you know, that's one way. And then the other way is this more dogmatic religious way of thinking, you know, Babbitt is trying to steer in between what he considers to be those extremes, neither of which is based on this wealth of human experience, which he thinks is the very foundation for human understanding. And that, you know, it's his way of saying also that, you know, the Jesuits are not the right response to the Marxists or some of these other modern strains by just trying to pose doctrines as if there's somehow a blueprint that we can refer to that will help us live life in the right way or understand it in the right way. You know, that is to privilege reason and to think that if we know what is right, we will do what is right. And Babbitt thinks that's backwards. Because even knowing what is right is subject to the, the wiles of reason, which can rationalize all sorts of things as good that actually are not. That it's this quality of will that is primary. That's where the focus needs to be. And these, these two traditions that he's talking about, they miss the mark because they don't identify what is the most important part of the human being, and that is this higher will. So what, what is it for Babbitt that I guess draws us one way or another off this sort of uh, synthesis mid-path, you know, which I guess one way pulling the will uh, too much into its own uh, romantic enjoyment and the other way pulling it into dogma? Is it just is it just either camp, I guess, having a hypnotic pull of uh, comfort, I guess? Well, it's not lost on Babbitt that there are influences, societal influences in any historical period that are going to shape the way human beings think about and how they imagine the world. And remember, imagination is very important for Babbitt. Like Napoleon, he believes that imagination rules the world. It's how we conceive of life. It, it, you know, while he talks about focusing on the facts, he understands that what we consider to be facts and what we consider to be factual is in part a product of our imaginations. It's how we imagine the world that, that matters because that's a prism through which we view the factual world. And we might not see things as they actually are if we're looking at the world through what he calls a veil of illusion, which is what imagination is. And if it's uh a veil that distorts what the reality of human existence really is, then the challenge becomes, how do you steer human beings back to seeing things as they actually are? And, you know, that returns us to one of the big themes in this work, which is you have to keep your focus. You have to, in his word, concentrate on the facts of human experience, by which he means primarily the law for man, this wide-ranging historical experience 
that illustrates what human beings are by nature, illustrates the limits of human will, human life, the limits of politics, the limits of human understanding. So politics is downstream from human will? Downstream from culture. And human will is certainly part of culture, downstream mm -hmm. from imagination. Mm -hmm. So politics is not wholly determined by culture, but it's greatly influenced by culture. So some other thinkers, Arrestus Brownson, who we've talked about before, uh, Russell Kirk, would emphasize something that Babbitt emphasizes without using this language, that we have this, this formal law, like a constitution, a written law that exists, and it exists in the same universe, the same reality with the unwritten constitution, which is really a way of talking about the culture. And to Babbitt's way of thinking, like with Brownson and like with Kirk, the written constitution is in some sense the plaything of the unwritten constitution. So when we read the document, how we read it, which today, of course, is very different than how it would have been read 100 or 200 years ago, why is that? Why would we look at the same words and draw very different conclusions about their meaning? And the answer that Babbitt would give is because our imaginations are operating in a very different way than the imaginations of, say, the American framers who created that constitution. What in particular is different? Well, we don't look at the human condition in the same way. We are not prone to see human beings as fallen, imperfect, and imperfectible creatures. We have been influenced by the ideas of Rousseau and others like him who have convinced us that human beings are largely good. So why do we need all these checks and balances? And why do we need limited government? Why do we put all these constraints on power if power is the thing that is going to bring good into life? Mm -hmm. Why should we hamstring our ability to improve, if not perfect, human life? Um, those restraints make no sense to someone who has that Rousseauistic understanding. So progressive thinkers like Herbert Crowley you know, talked about how democracy can perfect human beings, how government needs to be above the law, not under the law, so that it can do the good that can be done. If that's your underlying assumption, if that's part of the imaginative view that you have of human existence and politics, you're going to read the Constitution in a very different way. It's partly what gives life to what's called uh, living constitutionalism, that the meaning of the Constitution is not fixed. It's a living, breathing document that adapts to the times, that it changes, it evolves. And reading the Constitution in that way means that you can read into it. You can read into those words essentially anything that you want. And I'll, I'll give you an example from a Supreme Court case, the, the Kelo decision, which had to do with whether or not a government could take private property away from individuals for uh, economic redevelopment project. And in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, it says that government can take private property from individuals, but they have to meet two conditions. Um, they have to be justly compensated for that. And the property that's taken has to be taken for public use is the language. But the court, the majority in Kilo reads into public use. Well, public use, that's too restricting. So what it really means is something more like public benefit. So as long as the public benefits from the taking, then it's constitutional. But when you, when you, basically changed the language through interpretation in that way. You fundamentally changed the limitation on government power in the Fifth Amendment, because then the court can say, well, if we take this private property, if we take Kilo's home away from her and we give it to Pfizer or Redevelopment Corporation, which isn't going to be for public use at all, it's going to be for the use of another private entity, which would clearly, in most people's view, violate the Fifth Amendment then that means that government can take anybody's private property, say, and give it to a corporation who will 
pay more in taxes and by increasing tax revenues, then that's to the public's benefit because then government has more tax revenue with which it can do more good. You know, those things may seem subtle, but they are the work of a certain kind of imagination, a progressive imagination that means that the written document is itself, and this is partly Babbitt's point about reified dogma and doctrine. The written words are powerless themselves. So Babbitt would disagree with Jefferson, who said that our security lies in the fact that we have a written constitution. And Babbitt would respond by saying, well, good luck with that, because those words can be twisted and their meaning can be changed if they're in the hands of people who have a certain kind of imagination that is inclined to twist them in such a way that serves their own selfish interests and needs, their ideological purposes. So the Constitution only works, the written document only works if the unwritten Constitution is in sync with it and people can read it basically with the same underlying philosophical anthropology that engendered it in the first place. Mm. But the unwritten Constitution, that requires a lot of work on behalf of a mass of individuals who uh, need to know thyself and need to dive deep into themselves and, and work on themselves. So it seems in in sort of, once again, uh, a, a Vogelin sense, uh, and also to draw in Christianity, this, this notion in Christianity of bearing your cross, which in, in itself, like voluntary suffering, or I guess even to go to the Buddha to somehow you know, have a relationship with suffering, which then bolsters your relationship with what it is to even exist. This act of knowing thyself is one generally with with suffering. We've now entered into a time where because people don't want to spend that time to know themselves and with the Rousseau uh, angle of things, people, there's no need to suffer for yourself or to know yourself because you aren't fallen, you aren't, you're already at least perfect or complete. And so you just sort of um, act as a, almost like a parasitic vessel on the culture, which has already been there. But in your lack of ever imbuing yourself with any form of your own self-understanding, you can't really understand that culture. So you just end up, yeah, being a bit of a parasite. That's right. And so you end up taking on these projects to improve the world, improve society with a misunderstanding about the challenge that you're facing. So to go back to the issue of foreign policy, if you, if you believe that you know what is the best form of government and what is the best form of culture and the parts of the world that don't fall into line with those best regimes and best cultures, well, the project then becomes transforming them. Uh, and even if through military power, because like democratic peace theory would suggest, we'd have peace in the world if all nations were democracies. But <laughs> that's to suggest that harmony comes exclusively from the organization of political institutions, political and social institutions. And Babbitt, we should be clear, is not saying political and social institutions are unimportant. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying all that matters is virtue and the life of the soul. But what he's saying is both things matter. And for institutions like American constitutional institutions to work, it takes a certain personality type, a certain character, a certain kind of leader to make those institutions work. And a leader who is not inclined to be imperial, who is not inclined to go and meddle into the affairs of other nations. They're more like George Washington, whose great rule, which he articulated, he and Hamilton articulated in his farewell address, said the United States should stay out of the affairs of European powers, out of the political affairs. They should trade generously with other nations, but they should not get involved in entangling alliances with other nations that will draw them into meddling in the affairs of other countries. They should mind their own business. And that's a Babidian theme. You know, minding your own business is to mind the work of self-reform. And it's not that Babbitt is saying, well, there should be no societal or political reform. Of course, there should be. But the prerequisite to it 
is getting your own house in order before you go about the business of trying to reform others or trying to reform society. One is a prerequisite to the other. Mm. That's somewhat uh, somewhat socially and politically terrifying, I guess, because you have these institutions and you have constitutions and you have, um, uh, I guess, social structures that have been built from individual cultures, uh, which the you could say the ordered souls of those people have long since passed away and you have people who don't really understand the culture entering into them. And then you have everything being, you, you sort of have what's upheld is really a facade without any root. You know, I'm thinking all this time we've been talking about um, this combination philosophically between the many and the one, you know, the the eternally changing thing, which is unchanged, reminds me of Rene Guénon's notion of tradition, which is that you have a flower that grows, the root stays the same, but every season, the, the it blossoms, of course, in a way that it contextually has to. And it seems now that really it's like the the impossibility of you rip out the root and everyone's just trying to somehow uphold flowers which should have died four or five seasons ago but they have no understanding of how to really uh, replant the seed. And your question gets at the problem that human beings face when they they learn certain things. Uh, Let's just call it the truth of reality with a small t. When they learn about that, it's hard for them to maintain the insight over time. And so they create certain vessels, you know, tradition is a vessel, um, philosophy is a vessel, history is a vessel, the arts are vessels to try and maintain that understanding, to capture that experience over time. But human beings face the problem of memory. Their memories are imperfect and their memories fade throughout time. So Babbitt is a, a I've never really heard anybody talk about him this way, but I would think of him as a prophet in this sense, that if what prophets do is help us restore our memory of important things that have been forgotten, important truths that have been forgotten, then Babbitt is very prophetic because he's trying to remind human beings about the law for man in an age that seems to be obsessed with the law for thing, in an age that has become very utilitarian, in an age that is focused on science and technology and the material well-being of individuals, Babbitt is reminding us that there's much more to human life and human existence, that we ought to aspire to much higher things. And he's reminding us of thinkers in the past who oriented us to the law for man and Babbitt's renewing our understanding of the experience with that law. Do you think he'd feel uh, vindicated in his understanding of uh, politics and man if he was to be dropped into contemporary America? I think he'd feel vindicated and very disappointed as well because the problem, for example, that he identifies that leads to the First World War, the Great War, continues throughout the rest of the century and into the following century, that Americans are filled with this conceit that leads to this very aggressive interventionist foreign policy, which has largely been a failure uh, in places like Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. It's had successes as well, but that Americans have kind of lost sight of the fact that to maintain Republican constitutional government at home You have to not be so much of a busybody in trying to fix other countries. And when you look at recent disasters like Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I think Babbitt would say it's no wonder because your imagination is shaped by this Rousseauistic, very idyllic way of thinking about what's possible in politics. And you need to get back to a more sober understanding of what it means to be a human being and what the possibilities of politics are. So you think that sort of interventionism really would be the Babbitt's equivalent of immunitizing the eschaton to draw back onto Fogelin? You know, they've, they've taken, um, taken the romantic ideal of everything they think is perfect and are trying to project it everywhere else. Yes. Babbitt uses a little different language, but he shares with Vogelin, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea, Babbitt's language is sham spirituality. <laughs> and that part of what drives these policies which are imprudent is a sham spirituality, um, 
a false understanding of what goodness is and what constitutes and contributes to harmony between human beings. That it is a, you know, a loose yielding to sort of passions or the idea that democratic majorities can replace leadership, you know, true leaders, people of character, that what we need to do is remind ourselves of what is actually necessary to create order in politics, a just order in politics. What is it that is really the common human ground between human beings that creates harmony? And, you know, for Babbitt, that is this abiding by the higher will. Was there a pattern to that harmony? Could it, could it last forever or was it you know maybe cyclic or was it just perhaps spontaneous in i guess in relation to human wills well i mean you were talking about a complex thing right so that harmony takes place on different levels there's mm. different dimensions to it it's <clears throat> it's most distant level from individuals would be in something like international relations so at that level of course the harmony can never be permanent <laughs> because it's always uh, facing conflict between nations. So war always breaks out, conflicts of different sort always break out. But the world at the same time is not always in conflict and not always in harmony. It's partly in harmony and partly in conflict. And when there's something like a world war, as Babbitt writes about with the Great War, uh, it's much more in conflict than it is in harmony. And the same would be true at every other level as you go down all the way to the individual. So the individual is him or herself never completely in harmony and never completely in conflict, right? Because we're imperfectible. And even if we um, are in the depths of the abyss and human darkness, there is still the possibility of <clears throat> the ascent from the abyss and the creation of order out of disorder and chaos. So it, it, it's not one or the other. You know, these things kind of exist, like Babbitt is saying, with universality and particularity, the one and the many. <clears throat> They're bound up with one another. And we exist in a divided sort of way where these contrary things are in tension in us. And we may be inclined at certain times in our life or moments in our life to push in one direction or to push in the other direction. But the battle in the soul, so to speak, or the war in the cave, whatever language you use, defines human existence itself. So there's no escape from it. Mm. And that tension between <clears throat> order and disorder or order and chaos always exists, harmony and disharmony. It always exists. A healthy society, of course, is more inclined toward harmony. Did Babbitt believe in the afterlife? I'm sorry. Did, did he believe in what? The afterlife. Um, <clears throat> he wants to stay away from those questions that can't really be verified in human experience. Mm -hmm. So he will at times say that, you know, people of faith can believe in those sorts of things, but his project as a humanist, where everything is grounded in human experience and he is meeting positivists on their own ground, is I can't go there. <laughs> it's basically what he says because there is no human experience to verify that there is an afterlife. Okay. Okay. So why do you think he's, um, I mean, if you agree, he's been somewhat overlooked? Yes. Why has he been overlooked? <laughs> I think in part, it gets back to a comment you made earlier, <laughs> and that is that <clears throat> Babbitt is idiosyncratic enough that he angered almost everybody, <laughs> including people who would be potential allies. So the secular humanists of the, the Dewey type, the Sinclair Lewis, um, Mencken, the progressives, the Wilsonians, they despise Babbitt, of course, because he is undermining the veracity of the arguments that they're making. And kind of on the other side of things, the people who tended to be more true to tradition and to 
traditional or orthodox religion didn't like the fact that Babbitt rejected the idea that we should ground things in faith. He was against doctrine and dogma, and they sort of saw him as not going far enough. You know, the one side thinks he goes too far. The other side thinks he doesn't go far enough. And so he he's kind of sitting there in the middle, um, not all alone because he had significant followers. T.S. Eliot was a student of his. Walter Lippmann was a student of his. They're not identical to him. Paul Elmer Moore at Princeton was uh, sort of his um, fellow founder in the new humanism. And there are many people who Babbitt influenced. He had a following in France. He had a following in China of all places, which still exists today. There has been Babbitt scholarship going on in the nearly hundred years since he has passed away. Um, so Babbitt's ideas are alive and well, and not just here in the U S but in many other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Where would you advise people to begin with Babbitt? Well, that's a good and difficult question because uh, Babbitt's not the kind of thinker like Vogelin, who we've talked about before, that when you jump in, you have to kind of jump in with both feet and you're going to encounter arguments that are unusual, that are uncommon, that take some getting used to. You have to read and you have to reread. So I would say one good place to start, let, let me say, Uh, in secondary sources first. Uh, Klaus Rinn, who I mentioned before, wrote an introduction to the transaction edition of Rousseau and Romanticism. It's a very long introduction, and it's a good place to start to let Rinn explain Babbitt's ideas so that you have some familiarity with the language and the basic project and the context in which Babbitt is writing, who Babbitt was biographically, before you jump into Babbitt. But I would say for people who already know something about politics, especially American politics, that democracy and leadership is a good place to start. And that book, the Liberty Fund edition of Democracy and Leadership, also has a rather lengthy introduction by Russell Kirk, which I would recommend someone reading before you read the book itself. But if you kind of know about American politics and American political history, Democracy and leadership is a good place to start. If your orientation is more in the area of aesthetics and imagination and the arts and literature, comparative literature, then Rousseau and Romanticism is a better place to start. Rousseau and Romanticism and Democracy and Leadership are both heavy books. And Babbitt takes a little getting used to because he's an extremely powerful thinker who on a given page, you can end up highlighting almost the whole thing because he has these sentences that just crystallize an idea and an insight that make you stop and say, wow, you know, I've never thought of things that way, but I get the point and he's on to something there. And he may drift off and talk about other things and then pow, he hits you again with uh, with one of those great insights. And he's covering a range of thinkers and historical periods and traditions throughout his work. So it's, um, that was it's one, very yeah. Important. That was one thing I was going to say is be ready to turn the page and be somewhere else entirely without expecting it. Right. And you may, may need Google Translate with you if you don't have the command of languages the way Babbitt does, because he uses lots of foreign phrases in his work. Mm-hmm. So you're currently writing a chapter for uh, a chapter on Babbitt for a book. Yes, a book on leadership and sort of the idea of aristocratic leadership, not in the hereditary sense, but in the sense of natural aristocracy. And Babbitt is a natural fit in a book like that because in the book, Democracy and Leadership, you know, he makes clear that in democracies, we are actually more dependent on leaders and more dependent on more leaders than in any other form of government. And that the idea that somehow you can substitute leadership for the will of a democratic majority, especially a momentary majority, is just a pernicious deceit 
that we need to get past and realize that democratic societies need to do the work in culture of producing a class of leaders that are capable of functioning within a democratic constitutional system of checks and balances and limited government. So this book is sort of pro-aristocratic leaders? Yes. Very good. When's it going out? Um, probably won't be out till the very end of 2023 or early 2024. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, is there anything you'd like to add about uh, Babbitt that uh, you feel we haven't touched upon? Um, no, I would just encourage your listeners to spend some time reading Babbitt, there are a few thinkers that I've encountered that have been worth the investment. You know, any serious thinker takes a rather major investment of time and effort to understand the ideas. And I think Babbitt is one of those people that even if you don't end up agreeing with him, you will appreciate the power of his ideas and uh, see his influence in a number of ways on people like T.S. Eliot and, and Walter Littman. And others, and you know, there are generations now of Babbitt scholars um, who have written books of their own, either on Babbitt or about Babidian kind of themes and ideas. Uh, William Smith, for example, just a couple of years ago, wrote a book called um, "Democracy and Imperialism," which is really about Babbitt's ideas that pertain to foreign policy, American foreign policy in particular. And Klaus Rinn has written a book called Democracy and the Ethical Life, which is about the moral underpinnings of constitutional democracy. So there's, there's a lot of good secondary sources out there as well that have been inspired by Babbitt's ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also the Irving, Irving Babbitt Society or, or Irving Babbitt... There is there are a couple of things. Uh, there was the National Humanities Institute, which existed for about 30 years, that morphed into the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University. And that center still exists. And it's affiliated loosely with an organization called uh, the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. And that that organization is comprised of different people with different interests, but one of the central interests to the organization is, is Babbitt and his work. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to find all these links, put them in the description below, but uh, Michael Federici, it's been another great discussion. Thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. I enjoy it always, James. I, I may be running out of thinkers to talk to you about, but <laughs> anytime that you would like to have a chat, I'm happy to have. Thank you very much.